There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1120. Let's jump right into the corkboard events at ID10T.com for uh, anything in the ID10T community you might want to share, like Heather and Steven who write... The world needs more horror content, and we're here to help. Each week on our channel, we evaluate and score an individual character from a horror movie or series while tossing in a lot of humor. From time to time, we also include tours of spooky locations, horror con reviews, and haunted house walkthroughs. You can find our channel at youtube.com slash grave musings. Grave musings. Uh, well done, Heather and Stephen. Thank you for sharing. This is the perfect episode to uh, put this on because uh, the director, Darren Lynn Bowsman, who's been on the podcast a handful of times, has the new movie Spiral coming out, uh, which is great. All right. So Darren um, directed Saw 234. Uh, he's, he directed uh, Repo, the Genetic Opera, uh, St. Agatha, a bunch of movies, and then Spiral. It's Chris Rock. Uh, and Samuel L. Jackson, and it's basically a um, – I describe it as like a, like a crime drama set in the Saw universe. Although Chris Rock does have some really funny Chris Rock doing bits moments in it, but they're balanced really well with um, what, is, what is otherwise a Saw movie. So it all works really, really, really well together. And I don't want to say any more than that, but it's really good, really cool, and such a great reimagining uh, of a series that has had a lot of movies, you know? And it's just such a great new direction uh, that they've gone with it. So I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, that movie comes out uh, May 14th, which is today, the day that this podcast is posting. Not necessarily the day you're listening to it. I don't know when you're listening to this, um, but let's just say it's the 14th, then it comes out today. Um, so uh, please check that out. And uh, that's it. Yeah, here's the oh, and then um, there's a lot of good, uh, there's a lot of fun horror movie talk in this, and horror props uh, that we we kind of do a little show and tell <laughs> for you, an audio show and tell. But maybe I'll post on Instagram on the uh, ID10T Instagram page. Um, you know, we took a bunch of pictures of each other's props on Zoom. So uh, maybe we'll post that, uh, you know, for fun. Uh, so here we go. ID10T podcast number 1120 with Darren Lynn Bowsman as we start the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol.
are you? Uh, it's I'm good, man. Fucking crazy last year. Uh, uh, I mean, I feel like I feel like oh, wasn't Darren just in the podcast? No, that was ages ago because it was in person. Like you, I know, it, came it, to the studio that we don't use anymore because uh, you know the studio is virtual now. It's all. I just wonder how much the world will change when COVID goes away or everyone's vaccinated. Like, will meetings still occur? Will everything just be virtual now? No, some uh, will and some won't. It'll be a mix. Like, I think there's some things you need to go into an office and be in person for, and then there are other things you don't necessarily. I was kind of joking yesterday with someone. I was on a Zoom and everyone was in their home. You know, of course, everyone's in their their dedicated, like, this is where I Zoom from, home space. Um and I said, I wonder if when people go back to offices, they'll just turn their offices into what their rooms look like at home. Like, I, you know, know, if someone zooms from their bedroom, their office look like their bedroom or their kitchen or their breakfast room or whatever. I'm telling so, you, though, I have been training for this moment my entire life because I'm very introverted, uh, mainly. And I sit at home most of my life. So this 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 whole pandemic I've been I have been training for. Yeah, I mean, it's the introverts have been like, Oh, so now I don't have to feel bad about not leaving the house. Now I get to feel good about not wanting to go anywhere and do anything. I'm a homebody because I, I'm gone so much of the time shooting movies in different countries or different places that when I'm at home, I just want to be at home. And like I'm in my office with my screening room and my surround sound and all my you know movie props. And I just want to stay here. So, yeah, I know my mom, my mom was saying, because now that we're all vaccinated, she's like, well, I just don't want you to, I mean, I want you to like, I'm just, I'm concerned that you guys aren't like getting out of the house and it's like, where are we going to go? Like, what do you think we're going to do? Like, where are we supposed to, I mean, we just don't, you know, neither of us drink, so we wouldn't go out to party. Like it just like, there isn't, Lydia and I are like, where the fuck are we supposed to go? Like, we're just, we're very comfortable being at home. I'll tell you, I traveled for the first time. I got back yesterday. I actually went and saw my parents who I haven't seen in a while because I'm vaccinated, they're vaccinated. Um, in, in, I mean, fly, I don't know if you've flown on a plane yet, but it's so weird because the minute someone coughs on a plane, you see oh, the yeah. entire plane turn and oh, look. Cool. I mean, and it was, there was a guy maybe four rows behind me that I, I, I mean, I felt bad for him. He, he had hay fever, he said. He had like really bad at whatever, but you heard him coughing and sneezing. And literally, you would see the plane just every time tensing up and just like looking. And it was this guy who was like stared at the entire time. Yeah, because everyone's picturing that uh, that fucking scene in Outbreak where, uh, yep. where, where is, it? is it Patrick Dempsey? Like, uh, like, you know, in the movie theater. And then you just see the particles, the aerosol droplets go into the ventilation system. And so, you know, what's crazy about this pandemic and this whole thing is... Um, so I'm a huge conspiracy theorist. Like I read all the fringe news sites and, and, and I just, I love it. It gives me a lot of ideas for movies. So back in, we were in post on spiral and uh, I was on, this is back in December of I guess 2019. I started, or maybe even before that November started reading about this thing happening in Wuhan. And so I literally being a conspiracy theorist and a paranoid person, I started getting hand sanitizers. I was getting Clorox wipes and I was buying N95 masks. And I was telling, I was sending them, I'm in Toronto and I'm sending them back to my house. And my wife was like, you're insane. And I'm like, I'm Wait, not so insane. December of like 2019. 2019. Like two and, and a half ago. Yes. Yes. So I'm sending this shit back to my house and my wife is like, you're crazy. Like, and I'm like, I'm not crazy. If it's there, it's going to come here. 
And I'll never forget, I got a phone call from her mother one day and her mother showed up to our house to stay. And there was a box outside of, of masks. And she was like, you seem like a crazy person. And I was like, maybe I do. And I was like, tell me that in a year from now. Cut to four months later, it's everywhere. Uh, you know, we were we were just finishing the mix on Spiral and we were one of the last flights out before they shut the border down. Uh, and now I have a stockpile of all this crap. And I remember one of the first things we did when we got home was we donated all these N95 masks to Cedar Cyanide because oh, I'd fantastic. been, yeah, I'd been, I mean, I had this huge stockpile. Uh, so yeah, I've been, uh, again, it was something that I was aware of and, and while I was shooting in Toronto or editing in Toronto, just because of this crazy new stuff that I read. Well, and by the way, it was very nice of you to donate the masks because, you know, there were those people. I think one of the first things we'll, we'll always we'll identify with the beginning of the pandemic is the toilet paper hoarding. Oh yeah. How like a handful of people just like tried to buy it all up thinking they could sell it for like, you know, a hundred dollars a roll or whatever. And it's like, fuck it's, Come on, man. What the fuck? Like, you know, uh, yes, there are business ideas, but that's what you're doing is not is bad for humanity. So the idea that you did stockpile masks, but then realize, Hey, we have extras. Let's give these to the hospitals and the healthcare workers. Do you know what was crazy about it, which what I think was the most telling about how serious this was going to be, is that uh, when we reached out to this to Cedar Sinai, they uh, they sent a doctor. It wasn't an assistant, a nurse. It, it was a doctor showed up, and he and and we talked to him through the window, and he was basically like, "My, a lot of people on my floor have been using the same mask for three days now. They're like, we cannot get them." You don't, I mean, it, it, that, it was that moment that I realized how serious this thing was going to be that when he is coming to the house to pick these things up and just hearing his, his stories about it. So it was, uh, it was crazy. Well, you've answered, you've already, already answered my first question, which was when we, when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, they must've shot this, somehow shot this in Canada during the pandemic, but you wrapped yeah. it bef- like literally right yeah. before. And yeah, it's just so coming we, out now. Yeah, it is. So they held it. They held it for a year. Um, we were supposed to come out last year. Uh, we we finished the mix on like March seventh of two thousand twenty, and uh, it was supposed to come out that May. Uh, and so yeah, it was held uh, when when the the world went to shit. But we were done way before the pandemic. I I it's so it's been so much fun to watch your evolution as a director because you don't make the same type of movie like even though there is a genre that you favor you don't make the same type of movie you know like each time like repo was totally different from like saint agatha which was completely different from spiral which i said to lydia was like well this and i don't i want to be careful i don't want to talk too much about spiral because it's just i don't want to spoil anything yeah But what I will say about it is that it's, I was like, this is a fucking procedural crime drama that just happens to be set in the Jigsaw universe. Like it's, it's a totally different, it's not at all what I expected, which made it, which was, you know, another reason why I enjoyed it was like, this is totally different. I didn't know what to expect, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what. I mean, that, that's what I love about my career is, listen, I misfire a lot. Like I've made some shitty, terrible movies, but I want to keep jumping subgenres because again, it keeps it interesting for me as opposed to making the same movie over and over. It is getting to play in the horror space into these different subgenres, be it from, you know, horror rock operas to home invasions to political thrill or to um, procedural things. 
And I think going into spiral, I mean, that was a big, a big thing is we wanted to make sure we weren't repeating ourselves. They made eight movies on, in the Saul universe that were pretty much the same. And so they wanted to, you know, one of the big things was, listen, we have an A-list cast now. Let's figure out how to do this um, that pays service to the fans, but is something completely different. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of our mandate going into it that, you know, it's got the nods to the fans. It's got the traps. It's got the twists, but it's, it's completely its own thing. Yeah. And it was, and it was really like, uh, it was a totally different ride than, and, and, and that's the idea of like, okay, we're not trying to recreate. This is what it felt like, you know, like you just said, we're not trying to recreate what saw was. This is a story within the Saw universe that happens to be a crime drama that still, so that you have the connection and it acknowledges, you know, like that Jigsaw exists in this universe, that these things happened, but it's not like, you know, uh, it's like, oh, a guy's trapped in a dirty bathroom, you know, he's got to try to figure out, you know, it's not, it's not that. And by the way, I have to say, Lydia did a movie with um, Tobin Bell who she idolizes. And when she, when she was doing this movie last year, uh, she was like, Oh my God, I get to work with Tobin Bell. And I was so happy to report that they became like really good friends. He just turned out to be the sweetest guy. You know, they text, he just, she just adores him. And so it yeah. was. Yeah. Tobin is one of the um, hands down, the most intense, awesome actors I've worked with in the way that, the way that he approaches every scene, the way that he, you know, really antagonizes over every single line and makes the lines make sense. Even if they don't make sense in the script, he will find a way to make them make sense for his character. Um, so Tobin, and that's, you know, that was the other reason Spiral came to be the way it was. There's no competing with Jigsaw. You cannot compete with Jigsaw. There is only one Jigsaw. There's only one Tobin Bell. So trying to move kind of completely away from that, from the way the tapes sound to the puppet. We wanted, you know, we wanted to completely have the fans realize right off the, the, the bat, this is a different Saw movie. It's not trying to be that. It's not trying to be Tobin Bell. Yeah. Um, because you can't, you can't compete with him. No, uh, and that's really smart to not try. And that is, you know, that that can often be the sequelitis that, you know, it's like you make a movie and just through whatever, you know, I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean to say like accident in the sense that, you know, people work hard and they come together and people are talented and they work together, but I mean, you never know what's going to connect and you never know what's going to blow up. So it's sort of the, the viral quality that some films have, which the Saw franchise has. This is, this yeah. is funny. I, uh, I mean, Oh, there it is. Oh my okay. gosh. So wait, wait, hold on. Wait, are they, I don't think there's him. And then there's this dude right there. The other guy. I have to keep moving them because my kids are terrified now. Now they've gotten to the age where they're actually scared of things. So I have to keep moving them around the house. So there's the original Saw puppet and, and, then, the new, and then the new one right next yeah. to each other. Be, yeah. there, there's got to be a buddy. There's a roommate comedy in there. There, there is. There's a buddy cop show that we're working on, which will be the next one of these two the guys. Rookie yeah. the rookie and the grizzled veteran uh, yeah. uh, puppet. But, uh, but it's like the sequelitis, like things just magically work and then – it's like, well, how much do you lean into that for the sequel? How, how do you give people a taste of what the first one was, but balance it out so it's not like, well, this is just a redo. And there have been some really good sequels. Like, I really loved the Happy Death Day sequel because yeah. it completely, it, it went from like a time loop movie to a sci-fi yeah. movie. And it it was, they did such a good job with it. And I'm like, that's how you do a sequel. You 
you you kind of build on the foundation of the first one, but then where does it evolve from there? And how do, or, or like um, Devil's Rejects. Devil's Re- so I think we might, have, we might have mentioned this on one of our other talks, but to me, that is one of my favorite original to sequel jumps in the way that it took the main three characters, the Firefly family, and then completely changed how they were, how they interacted, how they even spoke. So I loved, I loved that kind of jump from the first to the second that he did. Yeah, um, and it, and that obviously was just Rob going. Well, I wanted to make this first. I wanted to make this kind of like fucked up Toby Hooper, you know, yeah. slasher movie, and then I wanted to make this like weird seventies, like road, you know, like road crime spree movie. And it and and he and it was rooted in just the fact that it was in that universe, and he used those characters, and that to me is like that's really kind of exploring film as a medium and seeing like, how can we use the same elements to tell different stories that are connected because we're using some of the same elements? Well, you know, and I think one of the, so when we landed, when we landed Chris Rock, um, you know, we knew that we had an opportunity to do something completely different that the original films couldn't do. And that's bring on an entirely different type of audience. Um, there are so many people that would never go see a Saw 9. They just wouldn't do it. But they would see a spiral in a way that it is, you don't need to see the previous eight films that came before it. You could literally start here. And if you like this movie and you're like, hey, I, I, this is cool, then you can go backwards and, and start again on Saw if you want to. And then new things will come to light uh, upon a repeat viewing of Spiral. But you know, we really wanted to try to bring in a more mainstream audience uh, and even the way they're, they're, they're positioning the trailers and the way that they are, uh, the new posters that are coming out, it, 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 it is different. Um, but there are, there are very, I mean, you have Charlie Clouser who did the score that has that same, that same musicality. You have the same grit and grime of the original few films and the look of it. Uh, but you got Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson, which is so like such a complete right turn from the other movies that we've made before. Yeah. And I, and I, I was wondering sometimes I like, so first of all, Pete Goldfinger and Josh Stolberg, I've known them for 20 years because Pete's wife, Jen Jostin, was in House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And so I've known them forever. And Alan Tudyk was on the podcast a handful of weeks back. And he was like, oh, I'm in this writing, you know, I'm in this writing exercise group with this guy, Pete Goldfinger. Like, so Pete's name keeps coming up. And, you know, for people who may or may not know, uh, Pete and Josh did Piranha 3D. Um, you know, and, and so it was great to see, and they've done a ton of stuff and it was great to see their names. I had no idea they wrote the movie until I saw the credits because I was saying like, uh, I thought Chris Rock was really, really well used in the movie because he's got great dramatic parts, but he also has these like Chris Rock moments where he's just sort of like, it's like, it's very hard to kind of, to squish stand up into, a scripted thing. Sometimes it just doesn't play, but it worked with him because it's like his character has a certain personality type and he just gets annoyed by certain things and he'll go off on a riff while he's on his way to something. And it's like, is that Chris yeah. riffing? Did he write that? Or was that Pete so, and Josh or was that collaborative? It was, it was a, it was a combination. So um, Chris was so collaborative as a producer, as a creator Um and as an actor, I mean, first off, I was a little scared going into it because Chris is a director and, you know, he's directed a handful of films um, and he is he's such an iconic personality. 
So one thing that was a huge relief was he was a fan of the Saw franchise. And legitimately, a lot of people will say, I love horror, I love genre, I love Saw. He actually was. So a lot of our conversations, he would reference other films. He would say, hey, you know, in Saw 3, when you did this, or hey, you know, in The Shining, when they did this. So he was constantly referencing movies. But um, we had maybe four meetings where no one was allowed in the meeting except Josh, Pete, Chris, myself, and Chris has two writers that he works with as well that work on his lines, punching up his stuff. And we would sit in a room and we would read the scenes out loud. And Chris would be like, you know what? This sounds weird, me saying it. Let me try saying it this way. And then he would say it a couple of times until it sounded right uh, for him. Uh, but then there are other scenes that he just would come in and be like, hey, I got an idea about Forrest Gump. Let me, let me, let me pitch you this idea about Forrest Gump. Hence that first scene of the movie with Chris which I love of he's doing this whole thing about Forrest Gump. Um, so yeah, he was, he was awesome to, to work with. Uh, so yeah, Pete and Josh would write it. They would then go to Chris and then Chris, Pete and Josh would workshop the scene to make it sound right for Chris. That's uh, amazing. I mean, yeah. that's amazing. I mean, Chris really is like, you know, he's, he's just one of our greatest living standups, you know, like the, bring the pain, which I'm pretty sure was 97 maybe. He had had that run on, he was on SNL and he did fine on SNL, but didn't really like pop as much off of SNL. He was on for a few seasons. And then he kind of like, just, this was of course before social media. So it was like, oh, I wonder where Chris Rock went. Well, he went and toured the shit out of standup for like two years or something. And then comes back with literally like one of the defining comedy specials of our generation. Like one of the best comedy specials in the history of comedy, bring the pain. And then it's like, holy shit, you know? And then his career just exploded. But you but you really see like, number one, you know, putting him in a, in a different context, the context being stand-up. And then you also see and appreciate like what a real detail-oriented craftsman he is that he really like does the work and really like leans in. And he you know, just would show up at random clubs after he got famous because you couldn't announce that he was going to be there so that he could work on material. I, I had such a surreal meta moment um, because first off, I, you know, I grew up listening his specials. I mean, I grew up in Kansas City and a lot of his specials were taboo and there was the things you had to listen to. And I'm sure a lot of people have that with you know, people like George Carlin or Sam Kinison. I would have to sneak listening to his tapes in. Um, so here I am cut to a 40 year old man sitting in Toronto. I get there the second, I'm there two days and I'm on my couch and I'm still in disbelief that I'm going to be doing a Chris Rock Saw movie and I'm watching Tambourine. And I remember my wife was like, the Chris Rock, you're, you're not fucking with me. You, and I was like, no, it's, it's Chris Rock. And so we're watching Tambourine <laughs> on Netflix and my phone rings and it's facing up on the counter and it's Chris Rock calling me. As I'm watching Tambourine. And so I, I'm like, this is so, this is just insane. So I pause Tambourine. I pick up Chris. And it's like, he said, what are you doing? I was like, I'm watching Tambourine. And something happened that he goes off on a tangent. It had to have been 20 minutes where he's doing a stand-up on the phone to me about real shit. It wasn't like he was trying to be funny, but it was, it was, I was dying. Like he is a storyteller that you hang on as every word. And my wife and I are both just sitting there in complete disbelief. That he, I mean, he he's incredible. The guy is 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 the greatest comedian. Uh, and and then working on set with him, some of the shit that he would do, which sucks that we couldn't put in the movie, and that was a balancing act. 
was figuring out what of his hilarity we could put in the movie and what had to get cut out for tone. And there is so many things that he did, uh, elongated takes that we could have used where he literally is just killing it. And it sucks that we had to pick those moments of what we could actually use. I'm going to listen. I understand that things that there's always complications with how things work and it's never easy. It's just like, Hey, here's an idea. How we do this? You could, I bet cut. You could do like a special director's cut of spiral that actually like totally shifts it into a dark comedy. I bet. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, we, we absolutely could. I mean, and he's got, uh, like there was a, there was a scene in the car very early on when he was with his partner played by Max Minghella who he goes into about uh, you can give your wife 600 Tuesdays. It doesn't equal one Saturday night. That whole thing that goes on for like four and a half minutes. And it, it literally could have been straight out of a stand-up special and it's, it's real relationship advice. It's it's, but it's hilarious. And so I think like, I think they did it with Anchorman where they had a completely separate cut of just different jokes that were not used. We could do that now. Uh, for those watching or listening right now, it, Spiral is not a comedy. It's not it's at not, all. It's not no, at all. No. It's got moments of levity in the first like forty minutes, but it goes it goes dark. But but Chris Rock does have those signature Chris Rock moments. Yeah, and 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 and, and, and listen, even making it a dark comedy be a tall tall order because people get horribly murdered in it. But 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 just his but it works within the framing, and I I do believe I understand what you mean about like for tone we had to cut it out because. I would imagine you don't ever want like you ever, don't ever want one thing to sort of overtake the general vibe of the genre that you're making, because then it kind of confuses the audience. And then sort of I, I would you say it sort of it really kind of takes away from the the sort of the grander messaging when you're not like sort of making sure the tone all balances yeah. out. So we wanted to make sure that in the very first, you know, the very first reel that the audience understood that this is a Saw movie. It still has the traps and all of that, but it's okay to laugh. And so, you know, the first scene is a, is a more traditional Saw opening. And then it goes to this, this hilarious monologue from Chris Rock. So it shows you it's okay to smile. It's okay to laugh. But then it turns on a dime again. It's super we, fucked up again. Yeah, exactly. And we, before the pandemic hit, we were able to do a test screening in Las Vegas. And it was, it was awesome watching it with the crowd because there's never been jokes in Saw movies ever. Um, and so here we are watching it with, with a room full of people. And you go from utter silence to uproarious laughter to it turning again. And it's just utterly silent, which, which I really, really dug. Uh, just watching, a, watching an audience watch this. Because again, it's, it's different than we've done before in a Saw movie. And what a fun movie experience to have where you get this full range of emotions where it's like, that's just that sort of, Hitchcockian thing of tension release, tension release, tension release, you know? But then the balancing act of like, oh, and it's Chris Rock, and oh, it's Samuel L. Jackson, you know? I mean, there's just a lot of elements to the movie that I think make it so interesting. And then on top of that, the other star of the movie that it's in the Saw universe, you know? And so it, it, it really just manages, I think, to find this nice balancing act of like all these things and they all work well together. Nothing really overtakes them, the, you know, like nothing yeah. um, tanks anything else in the movie. So like that is just as someone who like I always wonder, like, would I ever, you know, if I had the opportunity and I have had the opportunity, would I ever direct something 
And I think from watching, it's like, oh, well, that's a very important thing to learn as a director is learning balance. How do you have all these, these, these big A-list things going on and they still all work together and don't overtake each other? And that, uh, so that is a real skill set. Well, that's to me, um, the editing is my favorite part. Post-production is my favorite part of any, uh, of any film. Um, you know, directing is, um, first off, writing is, is lonely and you're by yourself and you're in your head a lot. Then you get on set and there's so much pressure coming from the studio, coming from the producers, uh, financial obligations. But when you're in post, for me, that's where you find the movie. Um, and we had a Dev Singh, who is the editor, a Toronto-based editor, uh, you know, we changed things, I mean, time and time again, like you'd watch the movie and say, this doesn't work. Let's go back and try to do this, this, and this. And there's literally four different spirals that it could have been based on the shots that we chose or the takes that we chose. And that to me is what I love about filmmaking is you take the same footage, you put it in a different order in a different way, and you have a completely different movie. Yeah. And, but that to me, you love that. And that to me has scared me off from, from really jumping into it yet, because I just feel like, I feel burdened by infinite choice where it's like you, because it could be any one of those things. How do you know? Yeah. <laughs> how do you, you know it's the right one? No, you don't. And is there is. even a right one? Maybe there's just different shades of different things. Well, do you know, one of the things that always kills me um, is when the movie's out and you start hearing reactions, be it from, be it from the fans of the Saw universe or critics. And they'll be like, I wish there was X, Y, or Z. And you know that you have X, Y, and Z on an edit room floor. Uh, those are the things that always um, suck. And you know what is funny is, is I've become, this is something that I, I kind of joking and I'm kind of not about. So um, I have one movie in my career that, that I have extreme regret about regret because I walked away from the movie before it was finished. I basically uh, I had two movies back to back. I finished my director's cut on one and then I left to go start another movie and the movie was shifted and changed from what I turned in. And that's a movie called 1111, which was never the edit that I made. So my, I made a movie that was very Rosemary's Baby-esque. And when I left, they were like, how are we going to fucking sell this from the Saw director? We need to Saw-fy it up. So they hired another filmmaker, editor to come in and make it more jumpy and Saw-like. And it killed it. It just completely, to me, killed the movie. And when I watch 1111, which I've seen once since I made it, I'm like, this was not the movie I made. Now, 10 years later, I would love to go back and reapproach that footage and re-edit the movie. I guess do a Zack Snyder verse, but uh, on a movie that no one saw called 1111, just because it'd be interesting a decade later to see the different choices that I would make. And could I craft a different movie than what was actually put out there? Well, that's the artist in you, though. That's the that's the like it's sort of like looking back, seeing where the the little scratch in the window is of your career and going, I yeah. think I can buff that out. I yeah, think exactly. I can do it. You know, I know I can make that perfect. And, you know, listen, it, for, for whatever it's worth, the valuable lesson you learned probably was, you know, don't do that again. Like, make yeah, sure exactly. you, you stick it out. So you learned a valuable lesson very early on in your career. And so maybe that's what that project was meant to teach you. And, 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 you know, yes, maybe at some point you could go back and do it. And that would just sort of satisfy that little bit of like, you know, the little bit of OCD in your brain that just wants to make sure that all the, everything is in the way it's in your you know, head. Do you know what though, for me, I mean, as a, as an artist is that I want to be able to die by my own sword, where if 
if I look at a movie and I can say like Repo the Genetic Opera, I had complete control on that movie. They let me do whatever I wanted to do on it. So I knew if that movie failed, it was my failure. I did it. I fucked it up. I, that was all on me. But then you look at other movies where I don't have complete control, where after I'm done, it goes through a huge process, things that I don't agree with, I might lose the battle on that I would, I want to have a, to get to the point in my career where I can die by my own sword and say, I fucked that up. That is my failure. And I wear that failure. But I mean, I think that as a filmmaker, you surround yourself with people better than you. So I've lost many, many fights on certain movies and they were right. I was completely wrong. In retrospect, I look at it and I say, you know what? If I would have won that, it would have made the film worse that I am glad that they won that battle. So it's this weird, um, it's just weird, I don't know, psychological game that I go through every single time. Do I fight for what I believe in and am passionate about, or am I too close to the material and they are right? I don't have perspective, they do. Well, so sometimes though, I think it's asking like, why are you fighting for something, you know? Yeah. Because sometimes if you're fighting because your ego is bruised, that there's a different choice, then, then, then you can kind of go, oh, I think I'm fighting for this for the wrong reason and not for what's good. But then again, there are those times where you just, you have good intentions, you're open to suggestions, you just don't agree. I mean, it's it's one of the things that I love so much about stand-up is that you get instant audience feedback and you can have this idea in your head that you are positive that this joke is going to kill and you do it in front of an audience no and they're laughs. just tepid about it and you do it again three or four times and every time it just doesn't work. And then you go, oh, I... Guess I was completely wrong. I mean, like, I thought that, but no one else seems to think, okay, that's fine. But I also agree that I love having that responsibility where it's not like I got to learn that I got to make that choice and mistake myself. And I think that's also why, you know, Rob Zombie is like, I never want to make a hundred million dollar movie because I just like being in my pocket of no one tells me what to do. I don't have to make cuts to things for any reason other than because I want to. And I really respect that because he's realized like if I scale up, it's not going to make anything better. It's just, and we often think of like bigger budget means better, but that's the idea of like, well, it's not going to make it better. It's just going to make it bigger. And that's not necessarily better because of what you're going to have to trade in for that. Well, and I'll say that that I've learned that um, recently uh, that, you know, I was so excited coming back to spiral because spiral, I had the resources I haven't had in 10 years. I had more money. I had more time. I had bigger actors. Um, But when you get in the middle of it, you have the exact same struggles you have on a $1 million movie. It's just bigger, as you said. So on a, on a $1 million movie, I might need 25 days to shoot it. And I have 20 days and I'm like, fuck, if I just had five more days on the spiral, I have 40 days, but I'm like, fuck, this is so much bigger. I need 55 days to shoot this movie. It's not going to work. So you are in the exact same struggles, just on a bigger scale. Uh, and so I was thinking, I guess that you when I went back in a spiral, uh, I'm finally going to have all the tools I need to construct this house. I'm going to have lumber that I haven't had. I'm going to have, uh, you know, hammers I haven't had and you get, yeah, you get more tools, but you're also building a much bigger house and you realize when you're doing it, fuck now I need this, this, and this I don't have. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a struggle on that, trying to wrap my head around that. Scaling up is tough and, and not everyone can do it. It's like, you know. It's amazing to me that the same guy that made Slither and Super made Guardian, you know, it's like that because you, to see someone, and that's when you realize like, oh, 
the expression, like at the end of the day, the most important element is storytelling. Is your, are your characters, do you care about them? And is what they're doing interesting? And does it play out in a way that's interesting to you? And all of the scale stuff is really just extra. Like, you know, you know, Slither is a really great movie. It's an intimate little weird horror movie. Guardians is a massive movie, but at the core of it, it's an intimate story. Like, so it really boils down to, and you know, and he just masterfully scaled up. James just brilliantly scaled up. So, um, at the core of it, does your story work? Do the characters make sense doing what they're doing? But that saying, like, well, it, just keep it simple. Okay, baby, I'm on a I'm on a podcast. You can say hi, and then then hey, I how's it going? And then, okay, please. Okay. okay, make my guy reverse guy. Uh, I will in a minute. I don't know how to do it, but give me give me a little bit, and I'll help you. Just out. give it to you. Do it. You can do it now. We can. No, we can I don't. Start. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what he wants. So Henry. No, you never know. For reverse guy, they can reverse anywhere. Okay, I I gotta read how to do that, but I'll look at it online. And we'll do it. Okay, remember man. On Minecraft, they're reverse. Guy. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I oh, stop talking. You get okay. it for me. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Yeah, you got to get pumpkins to do that. So go back and find some cup. No pumpkin. reverse guy. Yes, go get pumpkins. Make a pumpkin. I can't make it, dude. You got to go find a pumpkin. Go sit with mom and find a pumpkin. What game is this? Tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what you do. If you leave me alone, I will buy you two new Minecraft worlds. Uh, Deal. Nope. Sorry, I actually. Give me one second. Give me one second. <laughs> <laughs> the negotiation oh that's so priceless yeah the the spiral and saw director is negotiating minecraft with the sun uh you know what and so in a way you are you have to be a producer okay yeah. this is what you want here's how we get to solve each other's problems uh it was really funny henry um so when he when i was shooting spiral i think he was sort of four um, he, you know, I was really reluctant to let him come on set because no matter where you were, there was death or destruction. It might be a set over and we hadn't shot there yet, but it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, there was one day that we were shooting in the police station that I'm like, okay, this is a day that, that Henry can come to set. And, and by the way, he knew Chris Rock's voice from some of the cartoons that he watched. Uh, so, so he was excited. He shows up on set and we are shooting like a very normal scene. And I let Henry sit at video village and I let him have his headphones on. He was able to hear it. And it happened to be one of the times that Chris Rock threw in some extra, some extra words. Mm-hmm. He ended up, he ended up saying fuck 11 times in, in the scene is still in the movie. So, so Henry's got it on and he's sitting there. And, and so he hears fuck and he goes, <gasps> and then I'm like, Henry, be quiet. And then he says, fuck again. And Henry goes, dad, he said, fuck. And then he says it again. And then finally, Henry takes his headphones off and he goes, there are too many fucks being said. And then you see Chris turn around because like, I saw it. It was like screaming there are too many fucks. Uh, yeah. What game, what game was he playing? Uh, Minecraft. Oh, he was playing Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but no, he, uh, it was, uh, yeah. So so Henry ruined a Chris Rock take because Chris, uh, Chris liked to swear a little too much. But that was uh, Henry's one day on set. Chris gave too many fucks. Yeah. So what are you going to do? That was one of my favorite stories about Chris though, was um, we shot a scene and it was fine. He read what was on the page uh, and the scene was, was fine. It was good. But Chris comes to set the next day and he goes, you know what? I can do that better. And we had already tore the set down. The set was gone. And I was like, Chris, the set's gone. He's like, no, I can do it better. 
And I was like, dude, I don't know. He's like, just give me a close up, throw the background out of focus and let me do it again. So we did it. And it's my, it's one of my favorite lines in the movie. Uh, and this isn't a spoiler, so I can say it, but basically it's when he comes in to the, to the precinct and he says, I know some of you are mad at me. I know some of you hate me. And then he looks at one of them and he goes, some of you are mad that I fucked your mother. And oh, then he's yeah. on. And like, that was just Chris being like, I got to do it again. And he added that little bit in there, which completely changed the entire intention of the scene. And that, that's what I loved about him. He would just come up with these ideas and these small changes made a huge impact. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, I would love to talk about, because I just did, um, I, I'd love to talk about some uh, like horror with you as a, 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 a in broad, broad strokes, yes. if you don't mind. Because um, I just did, um, my wife and I actually both just did um, the Eli Roth's History of Horror yep. for, for AMC. And so we both just, I mean, and horror is pretty much m- most of what we watch anyway. But we really drilled down, you know, because there's a list of movies that you that you draw from. And we tried to get through them as many as we could. And I really um, zoned in on uh, a lot of 70s like Cronenberg and just oh, yeah. stuff that I hadn't seen in a really long time. Like, yes, I know Scanners, but I really hadn't seen Scanners in a really in years. And Lydia had never seen like Scanners or Rabid or and so we watched them and I, f- I find it really interesting that the um, the spacing of 70s horror is very, I-, I would say like, well, it's it's more drawn out. It's more of a slow burn. Then the 80s come around, you get slashers, you get Friday the 13th, and like things just kind of move. There's, you know, killing right away. There's, the, you know, and uh, and we go, well, the 70s, like things just move slower, but... Now we have elevate, elevated horror. In elevated. There's like, that word. There's where that it's word. just like, which I just say is like, well, it's tone horror, right? Where it's tone. It's an hour and a half of like beautiful cinematography, great acting. You feel uncomfortable. And then it just, and then it's a twilight zone the last 15 minutes. Like then there's a twist that where things just quickly fall apart. And you hope that the twist justifies the last hour and a half of the movie that you were watching. But it's definitely like an arty, 
uh, arty horror, like art house horror. But when I look back at these 70s, like a lot of 70s horror, it's not dissimilar to the pacing of what that 70s horror was. Would you agree with that or am I crazy? So, so no, my, my favorite era of filmmaking is, is from the very late 60s through the 70s. And I, if I go back and start listing off some of my favorite horror movies, they come from that era. Be it Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, The Exorcist, uh, you Scanners. Uh, these are my favorite types of movies. And I think that, that again, it, it, is, it is a slower build more character, but the production design, like one of the things that, again, I, I love about something like Rosemary's Baby, for example, is you get to know the characters. Um, you, you're seeing them shot, or The Shining. Uh, they are so well done, acted so superbly. Uh, the, the the direction is masterful. I mean, on something like Shining, when you're talking about Kubrick, um, where then in the 80s, they became a lot more tongue-in-cheek, uh, co-eds taking showers, getting sliced up by manacled serial killers. Uh, gone were some of the character developments and some of the amazing set design and some of the amazing production design. And it was more for thrills and kills, where I think in the 70s, it got under your skin more. It, it, it was a something that just burrowed in your skin and stayed there. And if you look at what they call elevated horror, like you know Ari Aster's Midsommar or um, Hereditary, I think what it is, is going back to attention to character, masterfully set up shots, uh, and the camera can actually fixate and stay on something without having to rapidly cut to keep your audience's attention because you're trusting your performances. Uh, But, you know, 70s today, I mean, even now still is 90% of what I watch. I mean, just even hearing you describe it that way makes me think like, oh, yeah, because in the seventies, there isn't really cable yet. And so we're still thinking about things in terms of cinema cinema. So it's, there's it's, like yeah. cinematic horror. And then in the eighties, it's like, there's a fucking million channels. VHS. There's and also there's VHS yeah. and you're watching everything on TV. So then they become that it's not as cinematic. And it's really just more about the aesthetic qualities of like, Oh, a horror movie, there should be a kill here and then a kill here. And then this character. And then, when you trap someone, when you trap someone in the theater, you commit. You're committed to 90 minutes of sitting through a movie. There's no cell phones at that point, and you were there. And so you're going to go on this journey. So what it allows you to do is take more risks. You can say, "I'm not going to have a kill every five minutes on this. I'm going to let it. I'm going to let it build, and I'm going to let it get under your skin, and I'm going to introduce you to these characters because you know you have them for 90 minutes. And as long as you can nail the landing, you're going to walk away, and people are going to love your movie." When VHS comes out and and now people are watching movies at home, on TV, on tapes, you got to keep their interest because they can walk away. They can go in the kitchen. They can, you know, uh, take their dog for a walk. So you have to keep their you have to keep their interest. And maybe that's why, again, some of the 70s films to me stay to be the most terrifying and the ones that had the greatest impact on me. But also even just the size and like going to a movie which seems crazy now because i haven't been to a movie and i don't know how like to a movie theater and i don't know how yeah. long and then a bunch of you know the, the bunch of theaters just closed in los yeah. angeles the cinerama dome and all the pacific theaters and and so um but even when you think about like you're shooting a movie that is meant to be seen on a massive immersive screen where you're able to really like live in the world a little bit more and see more detailing versus like well people are just going to fucking watch this on a I mean, TVs were not huge in Four the by three, 80s. yeah, the small aspect. Yeah, it was... And so you have a different aspect ratio and then a smaller viewing area. And so it's like that, even even that medium just sort of changes, I imagine, the storytelling tools. No, it, it absolutely does. I, I think, um, 
it's become harder and specifically now, like in, in 2021, uh, it's hard for me to focus on anything that I watch. And I have to, I have to make an effort to say to my wife, okay, Hey, we're going to watch, we're going to watch this and we're putting our phones outside. We're shutting the door and we are not getting it. We're not doing this because the reality is 90% of the things I watch, I'm doing 15 other things and they don't have the impact on me. And I don't think that the movies are less good. I think that I am more distracted. So I'm not in, I don't, I don't have the buy-in like I used to. Now I did go to the movie for the first time uh, in a year and a half. I went and saw nobody. Um, so I, oh, you saw in the theater? I God, saw that the theater. So fucking good. No, and that's what I was going to say. So I remember like it was, I was smiling at the screen the entire time. Like I was just smiling at the fucking screen because it's like I'm hearing the surround sounds and I'm seeing it in this huge, you know, this huge screen. And it made that experience of that movie memorable. It is in my mind now versus the 15 other movies I've watched on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. They just don't. And I think that, again, a lot of it has to do with distraction. So when you go from 1970s where you're watching things in a movie theater to now you're watching something on a smaller TV in your home with shitty speakers and there are distractions all around you, it's a, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, because, you, you know, you're watching and you go, even if the movie's great, oh, I know that character actor. Who is that guy you look at? And that just takes you down a rabbit hole and then you've missed like five minutes of the movie and then you got to go back and then you, you totally... but. Yeah, nobody is so great, and I'm so happy for Odenkirk. I mean, it's like, who who would have thought? I mean, you know, like any Mr. Show fan going. I mean, I like I remember watching Bob stand up on Comedy Central, and like in the early '90s, like he was a stand up, and then he did sketch. He was on the Ben Stiller show. He was great. Then he does Mr. Show. Then he kind of floats around a bit. He pops up. He does some cool stuff here and there. He's trying to get stuff going. Oh, and then he just. He lands a very small role on a show called Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Yeah, ends up being a great element of that show. He's on more. Boom! He gets a spinoff. That is all of a sudden now he's Emmy, you know, Emmy nominated Bob Odenkirk, and now he's a fucking action star. An action like star. Fifty eight. Could you imagine, it, like, you know, like going back to that stand up comic in the early nineties ago? You're going to be an action star at fifty eight. What? What the fuck are you talking about? And. He pulled it off. Like that movie is really fantastic. I showed it to my parents when I went home. So I, I said I got back from Kansas, uh, Missouri, and uh, it, it was at that point it was on Apple TV. So I got it for them and we watched it. And it was, it, it is awesome. Uh, it, it, I, I love that movie for so many different reasons, but um, it, I don't know. It, it, for me, that, that's a perfect example of tone. I'm used to him being a comedian. And while there are mo- the whole movie's got moments of, of levity and humor in it, but it is John Wick. I felt the same way watching that as when I saw John Wick. It's cool. It's badass. It I was I remember the last time I watched the movie so rapidly together. I saw it in the theaters on Monday, and then on Saturday I'm watching it on direct TV again, and I'm still smiling like a fucking child in it. Uh it, it gave me that John Wick feel. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing the trailer a handful of months ago. Another comedian friend of mine was like, have you seen the trailer for Odenkirk's movie? And I go, no. And I watched the Red Band trailer and I was like, this is fucking brilliant. Somewhat, I mean, I don't know what the pitch was, but it was just like, hey, what if John Wick settled down and got a family and kind of forgot who he was? Like, what would happen? And it, because that's that's really kind of what John Wick wants. He's yeah. all, he wants that. He wants just a normal life. He tries to have it. Unfortunately, you know, Spoiler, his John Wick's wife dies and then, you know, like all these horrible things happen. And so he's got to he gets reawakened. But this is just a different take on 
and 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 such a, a the, the simplicity of it is so brilliant. How great is Christopher Lloyd? I mean, oh well, my god, fantastic! I mean, like the addition of Christopher Lloyd like elevates it, and he's great in it, and it and it just there are just so many elements of that movie where you're like, fuck yes. Like, it's just, it's so satisfying. Yeah. I was, uh, it, that was a great. And again, this is why I'm, I'm praying that people do start returning to the cinemas because watching that, I saw it at city walk and watching it in what I will say is sold out theater, but there were seats in between us watching it in a the theater, hearing the reactions around me, seeing it in the big screen, I had a connection to the material again. And I, I don't remember the last time that I have felt connected to something I was watching just due to my kid walking in to talk about Minecraft or my wife <laughs> yelling at me to get the laundry out of the dryer. Like it just doesn't happen. So, you know, it was a blow hearing that the arc lights close, specifics close. I mean, that's 300 screens gone. Just someone gone. will, someone will pick those. Someone will have to invest and pick the, at least the Cinerama Dome. Because Quentin Tarantino, will, where are you right now? Your, people will start going back to the theaters. I think people yeah. will be dying for that experience again of being able to not be distracted, to be able, I think they'll miss, you know, we took for granted that we didn't have to leave the house. And then for a long time, we couldn't. Yeah. And so then I think people will really be excited to get that back. But, you know, Vince Gilligan is such a genius for so many reasons, but he also understands like, you take a good comic actor and you put them in the right kind of surreal, dramatic situation. Cranston was a comedian. Cranston yeah. was an actor, actor, but he was largely known for comedy before. Malcolm in the Middle, yeah. Malcolm in the Middle and just the sitcoms and all these other things that he had done. And then, you know, and because comedians, and this comes back to Spiral, comedians do have a certain amount of depth because comedy tends to come from pain or as a defense mechanism or it's a coping mechanism. And so, you know, if you can tap into that, which I think you do with Chris, then you really, and Bob for with nobody in salt, better call Saul, you really have this magical thing that has this, has more depth to it because, you know, your, your, your lead characters are, it's just like something about the comedy and shifting the tone of it a little bit. And that's why to me, get out was so, I mean, like I used to love Key and Peele. Like it was my favorite. I mean, that, that shit was hilarious. Then you see uh, as a director, that turn, who would have thought back then when you were watching season one of that, that he would go on to make one of the most uh, powerful, intense horror films. I mean, and I'm sure influential, not even just horror films, like one of the most influential films, like when they do like the best films and you know, the top 100, like there's no way that's not going to be on the list. Like it's, it's, and having the depth and the ability to uh, to tell such an amazing story in such an amazing way to redefine the genre and to basically create a genre of the social thriller, which now like he's, I feel like he has created this subgenre. Yeah. And, and it's fantastic. Like it's, it, 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 it blows my mind and it makes me so happy, especially for him. Cause he's just such a great guy. Um, and also for film and storytelling in general, it's like, how often do you see something that fresh and like, oh my God, this, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. Well, what I hope is something like nobody does is that it allows casting or producers to go to out of the box ideas when going to a movie, because there's so many times and, and Rob Zombie does it a lot on his movies where he'll cast someone you would never expect to be doing what they're doing. 
And, but it, it's a brick wall you run into a lot where I'm like, hey, I have a crazy idea for whatever. And they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Then you look at someone like you just said, Bob Odenkirk as an action star, that is badass to me. That is amazing watching his transformation, the fight scenes he's doing, all of that. Uh, so I hope that you're going to start seeing more risk, seeing more people step outside of the comfort zone of what we as audiences know them for and allow them to do something completely insane like that. Well, but but then it's also, you know, then that's the struggle with making bigger budget movies is that companies are kind of run by marketing firms, right? So you have to be lucky enough that you have an executive that has like the sort of creative vision to say, even if I don't understand this, I've hired you as the storyteller and I'm going to trust you because they're trying to, their own balancing game is like, can we sell this internationally? Do people know who this person is? They're going to be motivated to, you know, put on pants and go park their car and go to a movie theater to see this person versus the ultimate creative choice of like, just pick good people and cool people to do cool things and word of mouth will like, it'll catch on, but you just never know. Like, you know, corpses didn't do well in the theater when it came out. It, it, it developed cult status. It, you know, like postmortem, like in it's in home video and in cable. And then that's where it develops. But if you just looked at it as like the movie, as it got released, critics shit on it and it didn't do very well, but it ends up becoming this like, well, that's, that also kind of helps like reinvigorate and redefine the genre. One of my favorite moments as a filmmaker that I've had in my career was there was a critic that uh, he said Repo the Genetic Opera, and he devoted an entire half hour. The entire show was devoted to how Repo the Genetic Opera was not only the worst movie of the year, the worst movie of all time. And here it is on network TV. My parents watch it. Our neighbors watch it. My friends watch it. And he literally goes into that Darren Bowsman as a hack should have his directing card taken away. This was an abysmal abomination of a film that elevated it to cold status that that then again made people seek the movie out, watch it. And we developed a huge cult fandom around something that was completely panned by critics and only discovered after it was released, a year after the release, did this thing start to, to, to build up steam? And now it's still in theaters, which is which is crazy. So finding these second lives on things like uh, Repo, which had a second life once it was panned and, and thrown out of theaters. Well, but it's just finding the audience, right? Like the traditional media model says, well, there's only one way to release a movie. It goes into a movie theater. And if it doesn't do well, then it's death. And if it does do well, then, you know... The old Tom Hanks theory was that, you know, each movie that was successful, you'd get three more movies. You get three more chances. Yeah. Then home video comes along. It's like, okay, well, there is a second life. It may not be as respectable home video, but, and then all of a sudden cable and home video start doing really insane stuff because they are giving artistic freedom to directors that cinema won't take a chance on. And so then all of a sudden people are like, oh, maybe this is, you know, maybe, maybe cable is cool after all, or maybe this is cool after all. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 
Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. So my career, I mean, like I, we've talked about it before, but you know, what we did with, with Repo and Devil's Carnival is that in the, the studio said, listen, there's not an audience for this. This is going to go straight to video. And again, straight to video now is much different than straight to video 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it was the kiss of death. It was, it was an insult. Dumb. It was kind of an insult. Oh, yeah. straight to video. It's yeah. going to get buried. Well, I don't know. So we, we said is we know there's an audience for this. Let's find the audience to which we four walled a hundred and some theaters. And we drove across the United States and I ended up making more money and being more successful doing that than I have on any one film that I've made because there was an audience for it. We were able to pack every single theater. The people dressed up, they put on their, their dark mascara, their eyeliner, and a la Rocky Horror Picture Show, they came out and they supported. They bought the merchandise, they bought the soundtracks, they got tattoos. And it, it was awesome because it showed, it, it, to me at least, that it might not make sense from a studio level, but there is an audience for every movie if you're willing to put in the legwork to find that audience and they will be loyal to you. So here I am, you know, almost 15 years later with Repo and it, it, it is still financially successful. It is still selling, it is still selling movie theater tickets. It's still selling Blu-rays. It's still selling soundtracks because we found the audience. And I think that filmmakers, that's part of your responsibility. If you make a movie, just because critics don't like it and fans, you know, the mainstream doesn't see it, find your audience. Look at The Room, uh, you know, the Tommy Wasatha, however you say his last name. That is a movie that should not have an audience, but it found the audience. It was a cult midnight audience. And again, that's one of the most amazing times in a the theater. If you've ever seen The Room in a theater, it's ridiculous. It's batshit crazy. They found an audience. So I think that as filmmakers, that's part of the responsibility once you do something is help it find the audience. And it's interesting that social media 15 years ago was driving around the country and just connecting with connecting with with your audience. And I also think there's an interesting, you know, it, the idea that someone had such a strong negative reaction to your movie and that to you is sort of like, wait, if he's very passionately against it that much, then that must mean that there must be a ba- there must be an audience who will be passionately supportive of the movie because he he these, you know these people these cr- the critic mainstream critics haven't really seen much, anything like this before and so sometimes when people are when they see something new that doesn't conform to the way that they you know and I don't listen I don't think being a movie critic is an easy thing you see so many things it it, it would have to affect how you see things it's hard to just watch them as a fan anymore because. It's your job, you know? And so if something doesn't conform, maybe that means that it's something that no one's ever seen before. There's nothing to compare it to. And it's not, and it's just wildly original. And like you said, you just have to find that audience. And now, now we can, you don't have to drive around the country anymore. We can find that audience without having to get in your car, though. That sounds really fun. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it fun. It was, it was something. I mean, it was, it was definitely something. Uh, no, but I, I think that you're right that, that with Instagram, with clubhouse, with Facebook, with all these things there, the, that you are clicks away from millions and millions and millions of people that we didn't have before. 
that can take a movie and give it an audience and give it its due uh, where that wasn't the case before. You were told you're straight to video. It was the kiss of death and you're gone. Uh, now that doesn't have to be the case. It can find a renewed life. Uh, and also I think that, I think that what the, what social media has taught us is that there, if you have an idea and you love something, that means that there are, you know, there is a variable X number of people who will, who will also would love that thing if they knew about it. So it's just like, where's the, you know, where's the subreddit for that thing? Where's the forum for that thing? You know, that you don't have to listen to someone if someone says, yeah, this sucks. You know, like, I mean, I remember seeing something like Mystery Science Theater 3000 for the first time and going, this is special. I don't know what this is. And that Joel Hodgson idea of like, we never said everyone was going to get this. We always said the right people will get this. Yeah. And it's just a question of, you know, then it kind of becomes a marketing issue of like, okay, great. Well, then how do you find those people? How do you get this in front of those eyes? And I think that's the, that can be tricky, even with social media. But to me, going back to like growing up in, in the eighties and nineties, um, I took pride in finding bands that my friends didn't know about and introducing them being like, I, like there was a band that I, I hugely loved back in the day called Morphine. And I would be like, if you heard the CD, you listen to this, this is amazing and introduce it to new people. Um, and I think there's something about that with with obscure films that are not embraced by the mainstream. You feel like you are one of the ground people, that you can introduce that movie to your friends, to other people, and watch the audience grow and grow from it, versus having uh, billboards and marketing materials say, go see this movie. Everyone uh, basically telling you what's cool versus you finding something that you think is cool and finding that sub community or that Reddit community that you love with it and you can discuss with it. So I love finding films that are, again, are obscure that don't have that huge audience and then introducing those movies to other people. And again, I've been very successful in my career. Some of my films have that with like the Devil's Carnival series. It was talked about within a fan community and online. There was no marketing. There was no marketing. We had zero dollars in PNA. But we sold out every theater because the fans found it and they introduced it to their friends. How did the fans find, like, how are, how are you 15 years ago connecting, you know, in a pre-social media era? How, how are you getting the word out to these, you know? Luckily, to go with Tom Hanks' idea about if a successful movie. If it was not for Saw, I would not have been able to do that. Got it, because, got it, got it, got it. Got because it. I had Saw, people were like, oh, it's the director of Saw. What is it? Um, and I think that from a critic standpoint, I get why critics hated Repo. And I think I, I talk about this a lot. The, the steak versus sushi is if you see something, if, if I tell you, hey, let's go out for steak and you love steak and you're like, awesome, let's go for steak. And I take you to a sushi restaurant. You're going to be pissed, not because necessarily you don't like sushi, but you were told you're getting steak. And I think that for me with with Repo, um, uh, here I come in off of three successful Saw movies and Darren Bowsman's back with a new horror opera you're like what the fuck is that and you go in and you see Paris Hilton singing it's trash you're like this is fucking horrible I fucking hate it because I think it's that sushi versus steak thing if if it would have been promoted as here's a campy rocky horror picture show-esque thing it's over the top it's flamboyant people needed the context they needed needed the context yeah yeah they needed the context and so I was able to use or parlay my success with Saw to be like the Saw director is coming to your town you come meet them, take pictures, sign autographs, and come to the theater. And it took us a hundred and some days where we literally got in a van, the van that, that smelled of regret and tears of us just living in filth, driving from city to city to city. And we built mini armies. And those mini armies became the biggest vocal mouthpieces we could have ever hoped for. Uh, they were our marketers. And they told their friends, their friends told their friends. 
And that's how it, that's how it happened. But without the success of Saul, I'm sure that would not have happened. But also that's an important step for you as a creator and an artist, because then all of a sudden you're conditioning the audience of like, Oh, this Darren Bowsman guy can do literally anything. Like he, his, his next thing could be, you know, uh, I don't know, like you could make a movie of just like talking rocks and people would be like, yeah, that's what Darren does. He just makes, he what just gets, a, he gets an idea and he does, and it's not confined to anything. It's just whatever he's into. So on my Instagram, I just posted it today under Darren underscore Bowsman is uh, I posted, I got to go to Japan for three and a half months and shoot a Japanese TV show in Japanese, no English whatsoever. So I had translators. Uh, and it was awesome because it was just weird and I wanted to go to Japan. So I shot a Japanese TV show for Hulu. And I think that that's, again, my other favorite part of my career is whether I'm bouncing from spiral uh, to immersive theater to Japanese TV shows, um, it's never safe and it's always um, unique. And I think that whatever I do next will be as weird as the leap from Saw to Repo was. But I think that is, that's where I hope that you're able to really appreciate your success because I don't think you, I, yes, you know, in terms of like material success, someone could have a billion dollars, fine. But I don't think that means anything because I think success is really, do you get to do the things that you want and do you have to do things that you don't want to survive? And if you, and if you can say yes to the first question and no to the second question, that is really structurally the most success you could ever ask for, that you get to do what makes you happy and you don't really feel like you have to compromise too much to do anything that you don't want to do. And you get to try things and you get to explore. When you look back at the tapestry of your career, you go, oh my God, I get to do all these weird, fun things just because each thing just sounded fun, interesting to me. And I hope you realize like that is you're it's you're so incredibly successful. <laughs> well, I I appreciate it. And I'll tell you that my 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 best thing about looking back at my career, specifically now that I have kids and I'm able to kind of look back on things, is that I have been able to make my passion projects. If I want to make something, be it if I call my agent and say, I want to do a large-scale, insane immersive theater thing like sleep no more, I can do it. If I say I want to go to Japan and shoot something, and I think that that to me, that, that is correct. Is that people get hung up on money or the size of your house or your toys, but I'm one of the few people that I know of my friends that are filmmakers that can constantly get things that I want to get made, made. And, and you're right. I mean, I'm very, very lucky for that, for that ability. But I also think that material success has its own trappings, which is if you were, if you got really successful doing something like really one thing where you're making like hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars, potentially you might kind of get stuck in that lane. And as an artist, it would be difficult. Like, ah, I mean, this is fun, but I really want to go do a immersive theater or make a weird genetic opera. And then be like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't do that. You gotta, you, you know, you, you're on this money train, you're on this material train and you got to keep that going. And if you step outside that lane, people aren't going to know how to take it. You know what I mean? Like, can I, can I put you on the phone with my wife? The context that you were talking about. I want to put you on the phone with my wife and sell her on that idea to sell her that this is the only <laughs> success that we need, not the billions of dollars. Uh, uh, but yeah. I don't, but I don't think I, you know, and obviously I know spiral had a, had a budget, had a good budget, but I also think, you know, to Rob's point too, like, 
having a hundred million dollars doesn't necessarily mean that everything gets easier. And when you can throw money at a problem, you don't always come up with the most creative solution because you can just throw money at it. Well, I don't know, just go, we'll build a new thing. As opposed to, you know, if you have real restrictions that you have to think around, you have to creatively problem solve, you know, have you found that that's where some of your best stuff has come from because you had to think of a way to do something because you just didn't have the money to buy it? Absolutely. Um, you know, so, so there's the creative process that, that always happens that, um, you know, you, you get more and more cooks in the kitchen where, um, I might have an idea and the producer has an idea and the actor has an idea. And next thing you know that you've diluted one idea with four or five ideas to try to, to reach some kind of compromise. Um, you know, the, the less the budget, usually the less time you have to make the movie, the, the less days you have. So you kind of lose that, that uh, chorus line or cooks in the kitchen where you have to make decisions on the fly. You have to say, this is what we're doing. Like on St. Agatha, we had very little time to make the movie. Um, and, and we had a, a, such a schedule where it was like one take, move on. This actor gets on a plane in three days and is gone. And that meant that there was not second guessing yourself. You had to go with your gut. You had to say, I'm doing it this way. We don't have time to fuck around. I'm not shooting alternatives. This is what we're doing. And um, there's something freeing about that. Uh, You talked about getting in the edit room. At least when you do that, you can be ballsy and you know that your choices, that you're locking yourself in with these choices because you get in the edit room and you have seven different ways to play a scene. Then that, that causes another problem. You go back to the dilution. Everyone wants to take, you know, what if he did that one look and said that one line and everyone wants to put their two cents in and you've left with a mishmash. So sometimes less money is better because you don't have that ability. You have to make decisions quickly and concisely, and that's what you're left with. And it's more of a singular vision. But, um, you know, also working on a lot of different types of movies, a lot of different scales of movies, a lot of different subgenres of movies, like different mediums, is such great training because you have all these amazing skill sets that you can pull from so that when you are working on something, it's like, okay this is traditionally this level of movie with this kind of budget. However, this is a situation where I actually can pull some immersive theater experience or I can pull some, you know, genetic opera experience, or I can pull something from, you know, a ghost, you know, from St. Agatha. So it, it's like working on, I, I feel like as a creator doing all these different types of things is probably crucial because it's giving you the amount you learn with each thing I'm guessing is giving you this whole new tool set to, to, to work from on your next thing. That's all cumulative from everything that you've done. I've gotten something that's happened recently in the last three years, which is exciting for me. And I don't know where it's going to end up going, but since I've done different things, I've done immersive theater, I've done foreign films in foreign countries for a foreign market. Um, and I make horror films. I see job opportunities coming from different places now, as opposed to a singular thing about, my agent saying, hey, here's a Saw knockoff script. Do you want to read it? I'm getting, hey, here's a, I got offered a Broadway show last year before the pandemic. Like that is an avenue financial and creatively to me. I get offer activations for things like Comic-Con. We're like, hey, you know, Hulu is doing this thing. Do you want to put together an activation for their new big tentpole? And I get movies. And then in that movies, I get, this the other week, I got offered a musical. Well, why do they got, because I made a fucking musical, but I also get offered horror movies. So I, I see the avenues of things I can do opening up, which is also exciting. So I don't feel like I'm stuck in one thing of just making saw knockoffs. Um, just it's kind of wrapping this up. You, uh, are, are there some, are there some other props in your room? Cause I'm, I'm in, I'm in my house now where we have 
And full disclosure, uh, the Disney props are mine. All the horror props are Lydia's. Wait, so, what am I looking at behind you? Is that a haunted mansion behind you? What am I seeing behind you? Yeah, so what you're seeing back there is a Jack and a Sally and a stretching room portrait from the haunted mansion. Over I love there. that. Well, Hunter, you want to see this? You want to see? He's showing something cool. Okay, thanks, dude. Uh, uh, Laura, I can't right now. What? Okay, he's just showing that. Do you know that Jack Skeleton from... Mm-hmm. All right. He's not impressed. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, let me turn my lights on and I'll show you. Yeah, let's see what you got. Let's see what you got. Well, I got it. Okay. So, my, my office is really dirty. So, hold on. Let's see here. I got to see what you're looking at. So, all of my posters, and there's props from each poster. So, Saw 2 has the bat with nails. Saw three over there has a the thing that cuts Jigsaw's head open. Oh, that's awesome. They're shadow boxes. I didn't yeah. realize that before. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Uh, bye, Henry. Uh, Mother's Day has a knife. Uh, so each of these things has something in it. Then I have posters that aren't hung up yet. Abattoir, which has stuff. Uh, obviously, I got these guys over here. And there are monsters in the back that are all covered over with uh, things because my daughter is terrified of them. Uh, but I don't know if you can see back over... Uh, you really can't hold on. I'm trying to figure out. Okay, there we are. Back there's there's steamer trunks, and then there are just props all along the walls of shit that I take for movies, like typewriters. I get set designs and I take it home with me. So like I will literally find something that I want. Like I, I collect typewriters. So I'll be like, hey, the character has to have a typewriter. Why does the character? I they that's just what they would use. And so I'll get the production to buy the typewriter so I can then take it home with me at the very end. So very good. Yeah. See, that's a collector. No, that is that so, is that is a collector right there. That is some very creative thinking. Yeah, so I will um I will literally look at things. You know what else I do? Um, which I recommend filmmakers should look at doing as well. It's my advice. Uh, pay for props. Pay for them. Like I will go to the prop department and I will say, like it's how I got Billy. I said, um, how much did it cost to build the Billy doll? And I think it was like eight thousand dollars. And I said, here's eight thousand dollars. I'm going to pay for it. And so at the very end, I take it home because it's now mine because I rented it to the production. So if yeah, if there Yeah. So I will, and this is one other piece of advice. I will actually give my uh, characters an iconic prop in a lot of my movies, something that I know, uh, whether it be a book that they hold, a cane that they use, I will, I will make sure that they have an iconic prop just so I can take it home to have that iconic prop. So I gave uh, Dayton Callie a cane. He didn't need a cane, but I wanted her to have this really ornate cane so I could put something in the shadow box to hang up there. So, so it's something that is just fun that I do, but what you can't see, and this is horrible and I'm a terrible person. Um, there's these two doors down here. It's stuffed of props, but they're all getting just broken because my kids come in. So I have like, like shit from, you know, shit from saw two in there. That's just probably getting broken and destroyed. Uh, because your kids think they're toys. They think they're toys. Uh, and my last, my last point is I have a storage unit. Um, I think I talked to you about this once before I have a storage unit but a mile from the house. And in that storage unit, I will take every piece of trash from a set that they're throwing away. Uh, Papers that Jigsaw wrote on, uh, you know, uh, someone shoots themselves. I will pull down the wall with the blood splatter and I will put it in my storage unit. Uh, And I have not done anything with it. So now I have about 14 years of props in the storage unit of just bullshit, shit that no one would probably want. Uh, but I'm like, it's awesome. So I have blood splatters. I have clothes that are just soaked in blood. Uh, I mean, that's genius because you, you could tour, like you could just, you could tour that. Like if there was a, I'm not Guillermo. Guillermo del Toro can tour his collection of weird shit that he has, but, but like this, uh, so 
I, I just have boxes everywhere of props. So this just says props. I'm not even sure what's in this one, but okay. Yeah. Clothes. This is, this is something that Stephen Moore wore in the Barons. Uh, here's the ninth sheet that he had in the Barons. Here is, you know, it's just clothes of actors and I just put it in boxes and I'm like, you know what? I don't know if this is going to be worth anything, but I'm but just going to, but that's what I love is that it's almost like, like just you know, clapboards, like just this kind of mother's crap. day, you know, it's almost like, Darren Bowsman, collector first, director second. You know exactly. what I mean? It's like, it's uh, like- so, uh, I, and you know what's funny is I, I keep saying I'm a terrible, I got to follow through with shit. I need to follow through. If the Boo Crew keeps asking me, when are we going to get a prop? And I've got so much shit to send to those guys over there uh, that, that these avid collectors of horror shit, and it's just getting destroyed in my house. So I, I, know, I, I was so glad y'all hit it off. I knew I, they I were just, great. I love it. It's so nice, so nice. And, and that yeah, house, oh my god, house, talk about fucking props! Like that place is unbelievable. I walked in there and I could not believe that I was in a residential house. Like it, it was, was just, a total suburban residential neighborhood. The house looks totally normal on the outside, and you're like, is that a fucking carousel in your living room? That, when they had me what? in. They had me come in and they, they, they go, oh, we want to show you something. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's a carousel. And they go, press the button. And I press the button and they had programmed the Devil's Carnival music to it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is, this, is, this is crazy. And then the artwork. I mean, the artwork in their little podcast room. I, I, I loved it. So thank you for that introduction. And thank you for having me back on the podcast. No, absolutely. Honestly, anytime. I'm just looking to see if there's a couple. Pro- I'm, I'm going to show you just a couple of Lydia's props. Just because I think you'll appreciate them. This is uh, this is uh, this is from the Howling. Holy shit! This is uh, this is a, a wolf head from from the Howling, and they uh, modded it so that the eyes light up. But I think the battery's dead. Oh my god! Uh, so that that that's pretty neat. Let's see what else am I looking at here? We got uh, we got gremlins. Lydia got all these gremlins from a Rick Baker auction. So we've got some uh, gremlins. Holy shit. Gremlins 2 gremlins here. Uh, I went to Joe Dante's house and I geeked out when I saw Gizmo. Oh, does he actually? He, of course. Why wouldn't he have Gizmo? We have, oh, we don't have Gizmo, but we have the, um, we have uh, this guy. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah, we have this Mogwai guy, and then uh, let's see what else we got. A so this is Lydia's all-time favorite movie is Army of Darkness. So this is an Evil Ash. That this is, is the head appliance that uh, that got we got Bruce to sign when he came to do the podcast. So I, I mentioned. I mean, I have these young kids. Here are some of the shit to see an example of. <laughs> this is fucking awesome. I love I love the, the the prop show and tell makes me so happy. This is a real bummer for an audio podcast. I know, I know. But like Oh my god. Yeah, so I got I got like fucking monster heads and uh but then like just just like I have like like dishes on my desk and like this is I'm going to fuck my kids up. Like so we can see this. So in this are, are like tongues and, and just, eyeballs. Just random face parts. It's just, it's just it. up. Uh, yeah. So, so my, my kids are going to become serial killers. There's no, there's no question in my, not at all. You know what? They'll be totally desensitized to it and they'll probably just be like, 
you know, like to them, it'll be like, ah, that horror shit, ah, whatever. I don't care. My dad was into that stuff. You know, I want to be a banker. Like, who knows? Like they might, you know, they might not be. Uh... My last collection that I, that I have, which is um, not, not movie related. I don't know if you can see this, but I collect old magic books. So I have tons of like books from the 1900s, early wow. you know, late 1800s of just old magic stuff. And so I've gotten really into magic um, and I've been collecting magic books and magic props and magic tricks. Um, so that's my, that's my other collection. That is really fucking cool. Those are really cool. Let's see. Do I have anything else to show? Well, there's a, there's a Dalek over there. I don't know if you can see it. I can't see. I can't see because of the, the, uh, the light. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take you over. Oh my God. So there's a, it's not from, it's just a company made a, made a, a replica of it. Um, oh, this one's fun. Oh my God, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> so I came home one day when we first moved into this house and there was basically just Reagan from The Exorcist just sitting in our fucking foyer and it scared the shit out of me and Lydia got it from Monster Palooza, I think. And it's not from the movie, but I think it might have been from um, maybe the Universal, might have been from one of the, the mazes. Yeah, the and it sat in the foyer for a while, and it really made me uncomfortable every time. Uh, and now I can't imagine not having like we're so used to. I'm so used to it now. Yeah. Um, but that's a but that that's kind of a crown jewel. And then the last one, I think, this is mine. This one's mine. It is a oh my god, Back to the Future in Jamming Under the Sea um, High School. Like it, it was one of the posters from the high school. That's actually from Back to the Future. Yes. Well, next time, next time I go to my storage unit, I'll take a picture. You'll love that. It's literally from floor to ceiling shit from 14 movies. Uh, just the most ridiculous things that no one would ever want that I just stuck in a storage unit. So I can't, I can't wait. I really hope I get to see you at some point. In yes. Person. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, hopefully, it's, hopefully this thing uh, corrects itself very, very quickly and, and people uh, start going back out again. Thank you, Darren. The Thank end. Go see Spiral. 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 Spiral coming in. Uh, Spiral is yeah. it coming in theaters. Yeah. yeah, it is. It comes in theaters on May 14th, and then I think it goes on streaming like three weeks later or something. But May 14th. Well, really great job, Lydia and Thank I. So much. Absolutely enjoyed it, and I'm I'm so excited that you've done yet another new thing that's different than other stuff that you've done before. Well, uh, thank you. So go go see Spiral. The end. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. 